chapter 3, and we're picking up pretty much exactly where we left off two weeks ago. And Paul is kind of mid-argument, so he's starting with a question, and he says, "Uh, what shall we conclude then? Are we Jews any better off from all the others? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, the religious and the non-religious, are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues, they practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, it's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let's pray together before we start. Lord, uh, Tyrell read earlier from Psalm 32, a psalm that you sang yourself um, as you identified with your people. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away in me. When, I, when he wouldn't acknowledge to you what you saw and what you knew, what you knew when he hid from you, when he pretended that he was uh, better off than he was, when he pretended that he measured up, his bones wasted away and ruin and misery came into his life. But Lord, the hope of tonight and the hope that we need to hear in our bones and in our heart and in our ears is that when when he confessed his sin before you, there was forgiveness. And Lord, we we confess to you and sometimes we avoid confessing to you because we are so afraid of what the response will be when we're done talking. What will you say when you see us as we are? Father, the good news is what you say to us as you see see us as we are. And so we pray tonight you'd give us ears to hear it. Apart from that, we can't. And so we pray out of desperation tonight, but also expectation. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, why don't you take a seat? Thanks. So, uh, I don't know, probably the past couple of years or so, I've been uh, a lot more, uh, I've, I've realized a lot more how much criticism affects me, like a lot more than I wish it did. And um, I get, sometimes like criticism can crush me, uh, But most of the time, I've realized about myself that I've lived my life in such a way. I'm a nice guy, right? I'm friendly. I've lived my life in such a way to always stay one step ahead of criticism, ahead of someone telling me I'm falling short, ahead of someone saying, Ben, you don't measure up, ahead of someone saying there's faults here, here, and here, or you didn't do this right. 
Um, when I was dating Anna, we dated for about two, two and a half years, and I was always terrified to ask Anna, Anna, what is it like to date me? Or how are we doing? Uh, because I didn't want to hear the answer. Uh, because I felt guilty enough and selfish enough that I wasn't expecting a great answer, and so I just avoided the question altogether. Because what I, what I really, really, really wanted to hear deep down is for Anna to say, improve? What are you talking about? There's nothing to improve. You're awesome. Best boyfriend ever. I can't wait to marry you. That's what I wanted to hear. But I was afraid I wouldn't, so I didn't bring it up. Uh, even in school, like in undergraduate, in graduate school, even in seminary, I, looking back, I realized a lot of what drove me to do well in school wasn't just that I loved the subject matter. I did love it, uh, a lot of it. Um, I had other motives, but one of the clear motives that stands out in retrospect now is the fear of having a professor who examines me, who looks at me closely and looks at my work, and writing on the bottom of my paper, you don't measure up. You're not a great writer. You're not a good preacher or a great preacher. Um, you fall short here, here, and here. And here's your grade. And so the way I responded to that fear is I stayed up later. I, I, I was kind of paralyzed with, paralyzed with that fear, so I procrastinated more. I stayed up later. I worked harder. And, it, and sometimes I got better grades. But it wasn't because I was like this super driven student who wanted to, um, just wanted to learn the material well. The, my motivation was avoiding that moment where someone looks closely at me and says, Ben, you don't measure up. You fell short. Now, the reason I start with this tonight is because I know you're the same way. You don't like criticism either. Uh, it's a scary thing for you, too, when you get put underneath someone else's microscope and they begin to examine you, whether it's a professor or a teacher or whether it's a boss or a roommate or your parents. And we respond different ways to those different people, but when we hear something, even if it's like, hey, your roommate says, hey, when you get up in the morning, you're really noisy and you wake everyone up. Could you be more quiet? How do we respond to that? Well, the whole walk down I'm all, you're recounting in your head how noisy that roommate is and how dare he call me out for being noisy in the morning. He comes in late all the time. Or your boyfriend or your girlfriend says something like, you don't write me sweet letters anymore or bring me flowers. And you, the guy, are all of a sudden, well, like, you never bring me flowers. Why are you getting after me? Suddenly, you want to be, have a house that's covered in flowers all the time, or sweet letters and stuff like that. And we turn our guns on the person bringing the criticism to us, right? We pout. We have pity parties. We're usually too embarrassed to send out invitations, but we have pity parties. Uh, we feel like the victim. Now, hear me, hear me. Sometimes the criticism is illegitimate. And it is a wound, and it's a, it's a wrong that's been done to you. I don't mean to minimize that. I don't mean to minimize people who are harsh critics. Uh, maybe you grew up with one in your house. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm saying, what about the times where the criticism may be legitimate? It may be real. Like, you really are noisy when you get up. You really should do the dishes more. Um, you really should be more thoughtful. And they call you out on it. How do you respond? What, hap what happened this week when someone criticized you? We defend ourselves, right? We're defensive people. Uh, and we do all the things that, that I said we did. And Now, some of you might be Stoics. You might be like, I don't care what people think about me. I don't buy that. Like, I never have bought that. If you say, uh, it's water off a duck's back, like the expression says. Other people's opinions, if they don't like me, they don't like me, they can deal with it. 
could it be that you're actually not very strong, you're not very stoic? Could it be that uh, you're so terrified of letting someone actually see you and reject you or see you and critique you that you never let them get close? It's not that you don't care about their opinion. You care more than just about anybody else cares about other people's opinions. And so no matter where you are in that spectrum, all of us are people who hate criticism most of the time. And our inner lawyer, who has a, 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 law, a law degree from a really prestigious university, who's really good at arguing, I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, or what I did was right and what you're saying I, I don't need to do. We have this inner lawyer and we're defensive people. But the question, if, if you say we're defensive people, you've got to ask the question, well, then what are we defending? Because defenses are there to defend something, right? Uh, and, and it's not just that we're defending something when we get defensive and kind of push back at people's criticism. Like, we really push back. And maybe you have to go way back in your, in your history to think of a time like this, but... Um, our blood pressure raises up, we get tense, like we get angry, we start like dwelling on stuff for like a week and we can't get over it. How, how did they ever, how could they say that? It like breaks up relationships. So the question isn't just what are we defending, but why are we defending it so aggressively? Um, if you try to go into President Crother's office tomorrow at lunchtime, you wouldn't have trouble. There's no defenses there. Uh, there's no guards, no guns, no metal detectors. You could just walk right in because he's the president of NMSU. What happens if you try to get into the Oval Office tomorrow? Well, after, this, is, this, is a, this is a bad week to bring that example. The guy actually almost did go to the Oval Office. But Mason, don't ruin my point. The point is, on most weeks, if you tried to get into the Oval Office, you would pass through metal detectors, lots of guys with very powerful guns, cameras, the whole works. Why? Because he is a lot more valuable, more important, more precious to the country than Dr. Carruthers is. And so the more defensive, the more defenses we put up, you can guarantee yourself what we think we're defending is more precious and important and valuable to us. So what is it? What are we defending? What is Paul shedding light on here that will be a little bit more clear in just a minute? I think what he's shedding light on and what we're defending with white knuckles, putting a little barbed wire around, is I'm right. It doesn't even have to be I'm right and you're wrong. It's just I'm right. And it could be anything as benign as like my, my political view is right. Everybody else is wrong. And you get really zealous about that. Or the way, like, wait till you get married. You will care how, you, how the bed is supposed to be made. You will care how the toothpaste gets rolled up and which way the toilet paper goes. It will become a large dynamic in your life because everybody has this dynamic going on in their heart of I'm right. But it also comes out not just with us and our friends and everybody that causes little arguments or tension or whatever else. It also happens between us and God as we set up these defenses to protect what is valuable to, to me, which is that I'm okay, that I'm right, that I measure up. In your eyes, professor's eyes, boss's eyes, God's eyes, that I don't fall short. Um, and I, I will either do this by evading your criticism, by ignoring it and denying it, 
or by being the nice guy or the sweet girl and always staying one step ahead so that you don't ever get to see me in a way that merits criticism. So all of us are kind of are running from these things and all of us value and protect I'm right. Which is kind of the root word for the word righteous. If that's always been like a churchy word to you and you're like, eh, that doesn't really, like, I'm never really thinking in those terms and I'm walking down I'm all or going to class or falling asleep. Rightness will do the trick. Rightness. That's what we're protecting, right? Rightness. That I'm right in all of these different places. And so Paul is like pulling out his guns and he's aiming and it's like all the little laser, laser dots from his guns are all aimed right at this thing that is so powerful in all of us, right? Have you been tracking so far, resonating, any, any of this hitting home with you, sounding familiar? Which means, Paul, you got to be like, Paul, um, why are you pulling out the thesaurus and like every word you can find for no one, nobody, nothing, he's pulling out here. It's like, a, it's this bombardment of, of pronouns here when he says this, starting in verse 9 all the way to 18. Of course you picked up on this. Probably didn't go over well with you uh, unless you've, you've heard this passage before. But here's what Paul, uh, here's what Paul says. No one is right. No one is righteous. No, not even one, in case you thought there was an escape clause in that no one is righteous. And then he goes on, he says, there is no one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. Simeon started tonight by saying, we're people prone to wander. We're people, and Tyrell prayed it, we're people who are not prone to seek God. Well, Paul's saying no one seeks God apart from God. Apart from his grace, nobody, none of us are God seekers. None of us are people who had a natural inclination towards him. He says just the opposite. He goes on. All have turned away. No one does good. Not even one. Again, he's hedging, right? He's like, have you thought that I'm not talking about you anymore? So he comes and grabs you back in. He says, no, not even one. There is no fear of God in their eyes. He says at the end of the passage, all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. So the question maybe in your mind is, wow, Paul is cranky. Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed this day? Well, look back at verse 9. Verse, like that little list that I just read, no one is righteous, no, not one. It's actually the answer to a question that Paul asks, right? Look down at your paper. Can't find mine. Here it is. He says in verse 9, what should we make of this then? Are we Jews any better off? Now, if you're here two weeks ago, you have a little idea of what Paul was talking about. Uh, these are the religious folks, the folks who knew God and had all the great stuff that God gave them. And they were always angling to say they're better off than everybody else. They have a leg up. They're closer. They're more important. And Paul is, when he says no one is right, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks God, he's answering the question that he asked earlier. Are we any better off? Do we have a leg up on other people, Christians? He's talking to Christians. He says things like, uh, do we measure up more than the other folks? Do we fall short less than them? Uh, those, this is the question that Paul is answering. He says, are we better off than all the rest? Now, some of us might, maybe it's not a question in our mind. Am I better off? Am I better than other people? I would say probably this is the rarity, maybe. 
Maybe there's a couple of folks in the room or a few folks in the room where you, you've kind of turned that question into a conclusion. Yes, I am better off. Um, I'm a virgin still, or uh, I don't drink, or I don't smoke, um, or everybody else in my dorm uh, smokes weed every Friday night or every night, and I don't. Um, or I was really involved in my youth group. Or everybody told me I was the most mature 16-year-old they'd ever known in church. Have you reached the conclusion that you're better off? That this doesn't apply to you because of your background or something? I would say that's probably pretty rare because by the time you get into college, you've started to have to put your cards on the table and see you got a bunch of twos in your hand. It can be a little scary. Probably more of you have reached a conclusion on the other end of the spectrum. Yes, I am worse off than everybody else. Uh, it's not that I'm better off. It's not that I'm even equal. I am way worse than anybody else, and there's no hope. And you hear this passage, and your brain kind of shut off after all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as if the Bible had a big the end, um, right at the end of verse 20, when he says, no one will be declared righteous in the eyes of God for doing stuff, for, for jumping through hoops, for being a good guy or a great girl. And, and kind of everything else was Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. Because you're like, I'm screwed. I'm worse off than everybody. Well, Paul pulls back on both of those. For those who are tempted to think, hey, I do pretty well on my own. Thank you very much. I need Jesus, but my sin really isn't that big of a deal. Paul is going to be pulling you really hard or pushing or body slamming you maybe. And then for the folks who are saying, I'm worse off than anybody else at the end, he's saying, uh-uh. The Bible, didn't, the Bible didn't say the end halfway through this passage. And he's going to say, keep listening. Come back and keep listening. And so no matter where, what end of that spectrum you feel like you're in, Paul's talking to you. And this passage uh, really does, uh, is kind of right, aimed right at you. But of course, we got to go the way Paul goes. He answers the question, are we better off? He says, no, we're not better off. No one is righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's his kind of his starting point. And, and again, like I mentioned a second ago, keep in mind Paul's talking to Christians. Remember how he started this letter? To the beloved, the saints of God in Rome, the beloved. He's talking to, if you're a Christian, he's talking to you. Um, why? Isn't this like Christianity 101? I get it. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. Let's move on. Like, that's like learning your alphabet. What's next? Well, Paul doesn't seem to think so uh, because he's talking to people who've probably been Christians for a little bit of time. They know the, the basics. They've been through kind of the kindergarten. But Paul, in a sense, is, is he's saying, though the gospel may have begun to penetrate your heart and your mind and your life, there's some strongholds, some habits that are so entrenched in you they still shape the way you see God and the way you see the world and the way you see yourself. And those habits are this, I'm better off. I measure up. Um, or I measure up enough. I'm, I, I get by enough. Um, God is nice, so he'll kind of let me slide through the cracks because I'm doing my part. Um, Paul says that kind of thinking still infects our hearts in one way or another. Otherwise, this passage wouldn't make much sense, would it? Considering who it's written to. So, he says we all fell. That's pretty clear. Why? How did this happen? How did, we, how did everybody... I was looking at Eli the other night uh, when we were feeding him, and I'm, 
This wasn't like a super dramatic moment, but I'm looking at him and I'm saying, Eli, you will not get through this life without excruciating pain. You won't get through this world without terrifying confusion. You won't get through this life without evil being done to you. And you won't get through this life without doing evil. And unless Jesus intervenes in your life, what what does Paul say? Ruin and misery mark the way um, of folks apart from God. But this is kind of the way life is for all of us. So how did it get this way? Well, Paul says, uh, if you look back again, at right at verse, uh, the end of verse 9, Paul says, everybody, the, the religious folks, the non-religious folks, the, the church camp kids and the kids who can't stand you church kids, um, everybody alike is under the power of sin. So we need to dig into that word a little bit. What does it mean to be under the power of sin? Because it's really different than the way you probably think about sin. Because until I was 24, I thought sin was a decision that I made. Like, it's like this light switch. I'm either going to decide to do it or not decide to do it. Or I felt like sin was like coloring inside the lines on a coloring book. And if you went outside, eh, you're like, whose mom ever slapped them for like coloring outside the lines? Nobody. They're just like, hey, try to keep it inside the lines. And the biggest myth about sin, I think the most prevalent, that probably all of us have a lot of going on in our hearts and our minds, is this, that I'm in control of my sin. Uh, I used to... This is kind of the metaphor that I, I kind of picture this in my mind with. I always thought that I was in the driver's seat, that sin was a passenger. And I was saying, hey, we're going to turn this way at this time, and then we're going to pull over. We'll go mess around over here a little bit. Then we'll get back on the road, and we'll go over here. And, and what Paul is saying when he says that we are, apart from Jesus, under the power of sin, he's not saying we decide bad sometimes or we color outside the lines. He's saying we are under a dominion, under a power, a terroristic, chaotic, frustrating power that destroys. Think about, the, think about how we talk about being under the influence or under the power of alcohol. Under the power of sin, under the power or influence of alcohol. What is a person like when they're under the influence of alcohol? And why is it such a dangerous thing? Well, here's the dynamic that happens when you're... Uh, kind of three sheets to the wind. The more you drink, the drunker you get. Here comes the irony. The more in control you feel you are. Right? The more powerful you feel. Right? Um, The more capable you feel you are. The wiser you feel you are. Here's the proof. You ever tried to stop the buddy from driving home when you know he's drunk and he says, no, 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 it's fine, I just had a few. Totally fine to drive. Hey, thanks for looking, like watching out for me, but I'm okay to drive. See, like the, the more out of control he's gotten, the more in control he feels. The more under the influence of alcohol, the more deceived he is. It's also why the drunker a person gets, the more stories they want to drop off and say, hey, watch this. It's like a couple of beers. It's like they just want to show you they can jump off of this. A couple of more, they're on the first floor, and you're like, holy crap, how did this happen? The more, the, more, the more powerless and helpless and, and needy they are. It's, it's the opposite. They feel more powerful, more capable in those moments. And so it's the same thing with being under the influence or under the power of sin Paul's talking about. The more under its power, under its influence you are, the more you don't notice its presence. 
The more uh, under its influence you are, the more powerful you feel, the more independent and in control you feel. Just like the wasted guy driving down the road, like bouncing between the shoulder and the other shoulder. Saying, like, I'm going five miles an hour and being really safe. I'm going to turn my blinker on a mile before the turn just to be really safe. All of us see that and be like, this guy has no control anymore. But he thinks he's totally in control, which is why the lights in the rearview mirror when the cop comes is so surprising. What's he want with me? So Paul is saying sin isn't just this little side problem that we have like, I decided to look at something bad last night or I decided not to go and talk to somebody I knew felt lonely last night and I should have, but I didn't. He's saying this is a dominating, gloomy, dark, chaotic power. And the more under its power we are, the less we notice its presence, which is a really big problem. Except there is a God, and he cares about his world, and he cares about his people. And and so to use the metaphor, Paul is saying if humanity is driving down the road drunk and doesn't know it, feeling as powerful, as independent, as, as in control as ever, God has sent what he calls the law to be the cop in the rearview mirror. Because there's three outcomes when you drunk drive. You either, you get home safely and you're more emboldened to do it again. You just believe the lie even more. I was in control. I am. In, I, that was a powerful moment. I was capable. Uh, and worse things happen to you. That's the first outcome. The second outcome is you crash. You hurt someone. You kill someone. You hurt or kill yourself. The third outcome is the best. You get pulled over. And immediately you sober up as that police officer, in a sense, is a mirror where it's like a reality check immediately. And you're not arguing anymore when he's doing the sobriety test. You're not arguing anymore when you're in the cell and he's like, I'm not right. I didn't measure up here. I did fall short. Paul says the law, the purpose of the law, the law has a few purposes, but one of the key purposes of God's law was to be the mirror that shows you you're not right. You're not measuring up. You fall short. Uh, God gave the law to Israel well long after God had already made the promise to Israel, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. The law was well after that promise of grace and gathering. The law was given to be the cop to pull you over and to say, you are not in control the way you think you're in control. You are not free the way you think you're free. You're not powerful the way you think you're powerful. He says, the law is here to make us conscious of our sin. Verse 20. The other purpose of the law is to shut our mouths. Right? The purpose of the law is to shut our mouths. Switching metaphors. This week, Anna and I heard a lot of bad news a couple of days ago. Like 24 hours after Eli was born we started seeing a parade of doctors coming in and saying, hey, his blood sugar level isn't where it should be. Hey, his temperature's all over the map. Hey, his heart rate's way too slow. Um, His color's off. He's not feeding enough. And uh, ask yourself this question. Why do the doctors kind of parade themselves into our room over the course of a day or two with all of this bad news, with all of this evidence, blood work, tests, monitors, all of this evidence that was pretty negative and that said things aren't right. Eli, medically speaking, isn't measuring up. 
he's falling short in some key areas. Now, what would have happened if Anna and I start putting on our little doctor, amateur doctor hat and argue with the doctors and say, no, he's cute. He's awesome. He looks fine. He really did look fine to us, which was so weird. We we're trying to tell people what's going on, and we're like, I kind of don't know. He looks fine. But what happens if we keep arguing if our mouths don't stop with the doctor? The stakes are high. Paul's saying the stakes are high when our mouths don't stop, when God comes into the room. Same way those doctors come into the room. And he confronts you. And he says these things aren't right. You're not, you don't measure up. You fall short. You don't seek. You don't understand. You don't do good. Did the doctors come to rub me and Anna's face in the fact that our son was sick? To mock us? To say, hey, this is stuff going bad. See you later. Have fun dealing with it. No. You would say that doctor is evil and cruel. So how do we read passages like this where the physician comes in the room and puts the charts of the x-ray up on the wall and he starts drawing our attention to it even though we want to evade his criticism because we can't bear to hear someone tell us we don't measure up. The reason we argue with God, the reason we make these little things like I may not measure up, but I measure up enough, the reason we do it is we think he's coming in the room to bash us, he's coming in the room to be cruel, He's coming in the room to rub our face in something. He's coming in the room to save your life. Christians, don't check out. Don't say, this would have been a great sermon before I was converted. No, this is written to you, where you are tonight, and me. No matter where you are with God, this is aimed right at you. Are you still arguing with God about whether you're right, whether you measure up, whether you fall short or not? in the way you love other people, in the way you love God, in the way you obey, in the way you go through your life? Are you still arguing? Are you still chattering? Are you still defending? Are you still justifying yourself? The problem, the reason that is fatal is because if you're justifying yourself, there is no space, no need, no room for you to seek Jesus justifying you. If you are defending yourself, evading criticism, trying to be a, a good little boy or a good little girl for God to stay one step ahead of his probing eye to keep him off your back, that's defending yourself. If you're doing that, you will never hear the Lord God himself defend you with righteousness that he says he gives you. And so maybe Christianity for you has felt utterly powerless, joyless, beautiless, because you have never heard a God who sees you as you are, where you are. This kind of stuff. You have never heard a God like that tell you, I see you. You don't measure up. But to continue the sentence and to say that there is one who measures up. There is one who never fell short. There is one who is righteous. There is one who understood. There was one who sought God and seeks God now. There is one who never turned away. There is one who has never become worthless. There is one who does good. 
There is one whose tongue brings life. There is one whose feet were swift to give his life for the sake of others instead of shedding blood. And grace and truth mark his ways, not ruin and misery. The doctor comes to you repeatedly because we start chattering again. And the Puritans used to say, until sin is bitter, grace will not be sweet. Until sin is bitter, grace will never be sweet to you because you don't think you need it or you don't think you need the grace and the quantities and the quality that the Bible talks about, which is nothing less than the righteousness of God himself. So why does God call you out? Why does God criticize you and me, to use that word earlier? Uh, Why does God call out how defenseless we are? Because he'd always intended to defend you. That's what justification is. We'll talk about it a lot more as Paul talks about it more in the coming weeks, but we can drop all of, the, all of the lingo that none of us really understand in our hearts. Justification means instead of you going through your life trying to endlessly defend yourself before God, God says, I'll defend you. I'll defend you. Because I will give you as a gift what he says right here, the righteousness of himself. He says, this isn't something I want you trying to measure up to. You fall short. This is something I'm giving you as a gift, as grace, and your access to it is faith. God wants you to stop talking, stop arguing, stop defending ourselves, stop evading criticism, because the criticism is saving you. The criticism is bringing you back to the only one who did measure up, and has said from eternity past, the whole plan of redemption was to measure up precisely in the places you don't measure up. Precisely in the places you didn't measure up today. Precisely in the places you fell short yesterday. Precisely in the places you're not right. If you hear those words coming from a God who knows you and sees you and doesn't run, but loves you, It will change you. You will stop boasting. You will stop running. You will stop posturing. You will stop pretending. And that's where Paul goes next week when he talks about that. But the psalmist said in Psalm 32, when I kept my mouth silent, when I evaded acknowledging what everybody in the room knew, that I was out of control, that I was powerless, that I was lost, that I was dominated by this power, When I didn't acknowledge that before God, my bones wasted away, which is a nice way of saying what Paul said here. Ruin and misery mark their ways. But when I spoke, when I confessed my sin, he says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God says you can trust him to see you as you are and to respond with grace. That's what Paul's talking about here. But the starting point is to be where you are and to own it. Because until we own our sin, until we own this criticism, until we own this, how do we own the gospel? In a way that penetrates us, that changes us. We own both and we change. Let's pray.
And come back next week because Paul doesn't stop his argument there and he doesn't stop the message there. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who has been over backwards from Genesis to Revelation and your story stays the same. You say to humanity that's running and hiding from you, to people like us who run and hide from you all the time, forgetting uh, that you are the God of grace, the God of power, the God who is in control. We run from you, Lord. Uh, But you are always telling us the reason I'm pursuing you is to save you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would know your character more and more, that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ more and more because he is the one who measured up on our behalf. He is the one who has never fallen short. He is the one who is right and can defend himself. And, Father, you give us his righteousness through faith and then you begin to defend us from everything. Because you say we are righteous, we are right, we are good in him. We ask this in your name and pray that you'll make this true in us. Amen.